0: Book Three, Chapter Eight, Part Two of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Chapter Eight, Part Two. The parting look in his face, and the sudden silence that had fallen on him, were not lost on Pedgift, Sr. "'Bashwood will end badly,' said the lawyer, shuffling his papers, and returning, impenetrably, to his interrupted work. The change in Mr. Bashwood's face and manner to something dogged and self-contained was so startlingly uncharacteristic of him that it even forced itself on the notice of Pedgift, Junior and the clerks as he passed through the outer office. Accustomed to make the old man their butt, they took a boisterously comic view of the marked alteration in him. Deaf to the merciless raillery with which he was assailed on all sides, he stopped opposite young Pedgift and, looking him attentively in the face, said in a quiet, absent manner, like a man thinking aloud, "'I wonder whether you would help me?' "'Open an account, instantly.' said pedgift junior to the clerks in the name of mr bashwood place a chair for mr bashwood with the footstool close by in case he wants it supply me with a quire of extra double wove satin paper and a gross of picked quills to take notes of mr bashwood's case and inform my father instantly that i am going to leave him and set up in business for myself on the strength of mr bashwood's patronage Take a seat, sir, pray take a seat, and express your feelings freely. Still impenetrably deaf to the raillery, of which he was the object, Mr. Bashwood waited until Pedgift, Jr. had exhausted himself, and then turned quietly away. "'I ought to have known better,' he said, in the same absent manner as before. "'He is his father's son all over. "'He would make game of me on my deathbed.' He paused a moment at the door, mechanically brushing his hat with his hand, and went out into the street. The bright sunshine dazzled his eyes, the passing vehicles and foot-passengers startled and bewildered him. He shrank into a by-street and put his hands over his eyes. I'd better go home, he thought, and shut myself up and think about it in my own room. His lodging was in a small house in the poor quarter of the town. He let himself in with his key, and stole softly upstairs. The one little room he possessed met him cruelly. Look round it where he might, with silent memorials of Miss Gwilt. On the chimney-piece were the flowers she had given him at various times, all withered long since, and all preserved on a little china pedestal, protected by a glass shade. On the wall hung a wretched coloured print of a woman, which he had caused to be nicely framed and glazed, because there was a look in it that reminded him of her face. In his clumsy old mahogany writing-desk were the few letters, brief and peremptory, which she had written to him at the time when he was watching and listening meanly at Thorpe Ambrose to please her. And when, turning his back on these, he sat down wearily on his sofa-bedstead. There, hanging over one end of it, was the gaudy cravat of blue satin, which he had bought because she had told him she liked bright colours, and which he had never yet had the courage to wear, though he had taken it out morning after morning with the resolution to put it on. Habitually quiet in his actions, habitually restrained in his language, he now seized the cravat as if it was a living thing that could feel, and flung it to the other end of the room with an oath. The time passed, and still, though his resolution to stand between Miss Gwilt and her marriage remained unbroken, he was as far as ever from discovering the means which which might lead him to this end. The more he thought and thought of it, the darker, and the darker his course in the future, looked to him. He rose again, as wearily as he had sat down, and went to his cupboard. "'I'm feverish and thirsty,' he said a cup of tea may help me. He opened his canister, and measured out his small allowance of tea, less carefully than usual. Even my own hands won't serve me to-day, he thought, as he scraped together the few grains of tea that he had spilled, and put them carefully back in the canister. In that fine summer weather, the one fire in the house was the kitchen fire. He went downstairs for the boiling water, with his teapot in his hand nobody but the landlady was in the kitchen. She was one of the many English matrons whose path through this world is a path of thorns, and who take a dismal pleasure, whenever the opportunity is afforded them, in inspecting the scratched and bleeding feet of other people in a like condition with themselves. Her one vice was of the lighter sort, the vice of curiosity, and among the many counterbalancing virtues she possessed, was the virtue of greatly respecting Mr. Bashwood, as a lodger whose rent was regularly paid, and whose ways were always quiet and civil from one year's end to another. "'What did you please to want, sir?' asked the landlady. "'Boiling water, is it? Did you ever know the water boil, Mr. Bashwood, when you wanted it? Did you ever see a sulkier fire than that?' "'I'll put a sticker or two in, if you'll wait a little, and give me the chance. "'Dear, dear me, you'll excuse my mentioning it, sir, but how poorly you do look to-day!' The strain on Mr. Bashwood's mind was beginning to tell. Something of the helplessness which he had shown at the station appeared again in his face and manner as he put his teapot on the kitchen table and sat down. "'I'm in trouble, ma'am,' he said quietly, "'and I find trouble gets harder to bear than it used to be.' ah you may well say that groaned the landlady i'm ready for the undertaker mr bashwood when my time comes whatever you may be you are too lonely sir when you are in trouble it's some help though not much to shift a share of it off on another person's shoulders if your good lady had only been alive now sir what a comfort you would have found her wouldn't you a momentary spasm of pain passed across mr bashwood's face the landlady had ignorantly recalled him to the misfortunes of his married life he had been long since forced to quiet her curiosity about his family affairs by telling her that he was a widower and that his domestic circumstances had not been happy ones but he had taken her no further into his confidence than this The sad story which he had related to Midwinter, of his drunken wife, who had ended her miserable life in a lunatic asylum, was the story which he had shrunk from confiding to the talkative woman, who would have confided it, in her turn, to every one else in the house. "'What I always say to my husband when he's low, sir,' pursued the landlady, intent on the kettle, is, "'What would you do now, Sam, without me?' when his temper don't get the better of him. It will boil directly, Mr. Bashwood. He says, Elizabeth, I could do nothing. When his temper does get the better of him, he says, I should try the public-house, missus, and I'll try it now. Ah, I've got my troubles. A man with grown-up sons and daughters tippling in a public-house. I don't call to mind, Mr. Bashwood, whether you ever had any sons and daughters. And yet, now I think of it, I seem to fancy you said yes, you had. Daughters, sir, weren't they? And, ah, dear, dear, to be sure, all dead. I had one daughter, ma'am, said Mr. Bashwood, patiently, only one, who died before she was a year old. Only one, repeated the sympathizing landlady. It's as near boiling as it ever will be, sir. Give me the teapot only one ah it comes heavier don't it when it's an only child you said it was an only child i think didn't you sir for a moment mr bashwood looked at the woman with vacant eyes and without attempting to answer her after ignorantly recalling the memory of the wife who had disgraced him she was now as ignorantly forcing him back on the miserable remembrance of the son who had ruined and deserted him For the first time since he had told his story to Midwinter, at their introductory interview in the great house, his mind reverted once more to the bitter disappointment and disaster of the past. Again he thought of the bygone days, when he had become security for his son, and when that son's dishonesty had forced him to sell everything he possessed to pay the forfeit that was exacted when the forfeit was due i have a son ma'am he said becoming conscious that the landlady was looking at him in mute and melancholy surprise i did my best to help him forward in the world and he has behaved very badly to me did he now rejoined the landlady with an appearance of the greatest interest behaved badly to you almost broke your heart didn't he ah it will come home to him sooner or later don't you fear honour your father and mother wasn't put on moses tables of stone for nothing mr bashwood where may he be and what is he doing now sir the question was in effect almost the same as the question which midwinter had put when the circumstances had been described to him as mr bashwood had answered it on the former occasion so in nearly the same words he answered it now my son is in London, ma'am, for all I know, to the contrary. He was employed, when I last heard of him, in no very credible way, at the private inquiry office. At those words he suddenly checked himself. His face flushed, his eyes brightened. He pushed away the cup which had just been filled for him, and rose from his seat. The landlady started back a step. There was something in her lodger's face that she had never seen in it before. "'I hope I've not offended you, sir,' said the woman, recovering her self-possession, and looking a little too ready to take offense on her side, at a moment's notice. "'Far from it, ma'am, far from it,' he rejoined, in a strangely eager, hurried way. "'I've just remembered something, something very important. I must go upstairs. It's a letter, a letter, a letter.' "'I'll come back to my tea, ma'am. "'I beg your pardon. "'I'm much obliged to you. "'You've been very kind. "'I'll say good-bye if you'll allow me for the present.' "'To the landlady's amazement, "'he cordially shook hands with her "'and made for the door, "'leaving tea and teapot to take care of themselves. "'The moment he reached his own room, "'he locked himself in. "'For a little while he stood holding by the chimney-piece, "'waiting to recover his breath.' The moment he could move again, he opened his writing-desk on the table. "'That for you, Mr. Pedgift and son,' he said, with a snap of his fingers as he sat down. "'I've got a son, too.' There was a knock at the door, a knock, soft, considerate, and confidential. The anxious landlady wished to know whether Mr. Bashwood was ill, and begged to intimate for the second time that she earnestly trusted she had given him no offence. "'No, no,' he called through the door. "'I'm quite well. I'm writing, ma'am, I'm writing. "'Please to excuse me.' "'She's a good woman. "'She's an excellent woman,' he thought, "'when the landlady had retired. "'I'll make her a little present. "'My mind so unsettled, "'I might never have thought of it but for her. "'Oh, if my boy is at the office still! "'Oh, if I can only write a letter, "'that will make him pity me.' "'He took up his pen,' and sat thinking anxiously, thinking long, before he touched the paper. Slowly, with many patient pauses to think and think again, and with more than ordinary care to make his writing legible, he traced these lines. "'My dear James, you will be surprised, I am afraid, to see my handwriting. Pray don't suppose I am going to ask you for money, or to reproach you for having sold me out of house and home, when you forfeited your security.' and i had to pay i am willing and anxious to let bygones be bygones and to forget the past it is in your power if you are still at the private inquiry office to do me a great service i am in sore anxiety and trouble on the subject of a person in whom i am interested the person is a lady please don't make game of me for confessing this if you can help it if you knew what i am now suffering I think you would be more inclined to pity than to make game of me. I would enter into particulars only I know your quick temper, and I fear exhausting your patience. Perhaps it may be enough to say that I have reason to believe the lady's past life has not been a very credible one, and that I am interested, more interested than words can tell, in finding out what her life has really been, and in making the discovery within a fortnight from the present time though I know very little about the ways of business in an office like yours, I can understand that without first having the lady's present address, nothing can be done to help me. Unfortunately, I am not yet acquainted with her present address. I only know that she went to town to-day, accompanied by a gentleman, in whose employment I now am, and who, as I believe, will be likely to write to me for money before many days more are over his head is this circumstance of a nature to help us i venture to say us because i count already my dear boy on your kind assistance and advice don't let money stand between us i have saved a little something and it is all freely at your disposal pray pray write to me by return of post if you will only try your best to end the dreadful suspense under which i am now suffering you will atone for all the grief and disappointment you cause me in times that are past and you will confer an obligation that he will never forget on your affectionate father felix bashwood after waiting a little while to dry his eyes mr bashwood added the date and address and directed the letter to his son at the private inquiry office shadyside place london that done He went out at once and posted his letter with his own hands. It was then Monday, and, if the answer was sent by return of post, the answer would be received on Wednesday morning. The interval day, the Tuesday, was passed by Mr. Bashwood in the steward's office at the Great House. He had a double motive for absorbing himself as deeply as might be in the various occupations connected with the management of the estate. In the first place, employment helped him to control the devouring impatience with which he looked for the coming of the next day. In the second place, the more forward he was with the business of the office, the more free he would be to join his son in London, without attracting suspicion to himself, by openly neglecting the interest placed under his charge. Toward the Tuesday afternoon, vague rumours of something wrong at the cottage found their way through Major Milroy's servants to the servants at the great house, and attempted ineffectually, through this latter channel, to engage the attention of Mr. Bashwood, impenetrably fixed on other things. The Major and Miss Neely had been shut up together in mysterious conference, and Miss Neely's appearance after the close of the interview plainly showed that she had been crying. This had happened on the Monday afternoon, and on the next day, that present Tuesday, the major had startled the household by announcing briefly that his daughter wanted a change to the heir of the seaside, and that he proposed taking her himself, by the next train, to Lowestoft. The two had gone away together, but very serious and silent, but both apparently very good friends for all that. Opinions at the great house attributed this domestic revolution to the reports current on the subject of allan and miss gwilt opinions at the cottage rejected that solution of the difficulty on practical grounds miss neely had remained inaccessibly shut up in her own room from the monday afternoon to the tuesday morning when her father took her away the major during the same interval had not been outside the door and had spoken to nobody and Mrs. Milroy, at the first attempt of her new attendant to inform her of the prevailing scandal in in the town, had sealed the servant's lips by flying into one of her terrible passions the instant Miss Squilt's name was mentioned. Something must have happened, of course, to make Major Milroy and his daughter so suddenly from home, but that something was certainly not Mr. Armadale's scandalous elopement in broad daylight with Miss Squilt. The afternoon passed, and the evening passed, and no other event happened but the purely private and personal event which had taken place at the cottage. Nothing occurred, for nothing in the nature of things could occur, to dissipate the delusion on which Miss Gwilt had counted, the delusion which all Thorpe Ambrose now shared with Mr. Bashwood, that she had gone privately to London, with Allan in the character of Allan's future wife on the wednesday morning the postman entering the street in which mr bashwood lived was encountered by mr bashwood himself so eager to know if there was a letter for him that he had come out without his hat there was a letter for him the letter that he longed for from his vagabond son these were the terms with which bashwood the younger answered his father's supplication for help after having previously ruined his father's prospects for life shady side place tuesday july twenty ninth My dear Dad, we have some little practice in dealing with mysteries at this office, but the mystery of your letter beats me altogether. Are you speculating on the interesting, hidden frailties of some charming woman, or after your experience of matrimony, are you actually going to give me a stepmother at this time of day, whichever it is upon my life, your letter interests me i'm not joking mind though the temptation is not an easy one to resist on the contrary i have given you a quarter of an hour of my valuable time already the place you date from sounded somehow familiar to me i referred back to the memorandum book and found that i was sent down to thorpe ambrose to make private inquiries not very long since my employer was a lively old lady who was too sly to give us her right name and address As a matter of course, we set to work at once, and found out who she was. Her name is Mrs. Oldershaw, and, if you think of her for my stepmother, I strongly recommend you to think again before you make her Mrs. Bashwood. If it is not Mrs. Oldershaw, then all I can do so far is tell you how you may find out the unknown lady's address. Come to town yourself as soon as you get the letter you expect from the gentleman who has gone away with her. I hope he is not a handsome young man for your sake, and call here. I will send somebody to help you in watching his hotel or lodgings, and if he communicates with the lady, or the lady with him, you may consider her address discovered from that moment. Once, let me identify her and know where she is, and you shall see all her charming little secrets as plainly as you see the paper on which your affectionate son is now writing to you a word more about the terms i am as willing as you are to be friends again but though i own you were out of pocket by me once i can not afford to be out of pocket by you it must be understood that you are answerable for all the expenses of the inquiry we may have to employ some of the women attached to this office if your lady is too wide awake or too nice-looking to be dealt with by a man there will be cab hire and postage stamps admissions to public amusements if she's inclined that way shillings for pew-openers if she is serious and takes our people into churches to hear popular preachers and so on my own professional services you shall have gratis but i can't lose by you as well only remember that and you shall have your way bygones shall be bygones and we will forget the past your affectionate son james bashwood in the ecstasy of seeing help placed at last within his reach the father put his son's atrocious letter to his lips my good boy he murmured tenderly my dear good boy he put the letter down and fell into a new train of thought the next question to face was the serious question of time mr pedgift had told him miss gwilt might be married in a fortnight one day of the fourteen had passed already, and another was passing. He beat his hand impatiently on the table at his side, wondering how soon the want of money would force Allan to write to him from London. To-morrow, he asked himself, or next day? The morrow passed, and nothing happened. The next day came, and the letter arrived, and it was on business, as he had anticipated it asked for money as he had anticipated and there at the end of it in a postscript was the address added concluding with the words you may count on my staying here till further notice he gave one deep gasp of relief and instantly busied himself though there were nearly two hours to spare before the train started for london in packing his bag the last thing he put in was his blue satin cravat she likes bright colours he said and she may see me in it yet. End of chapter 8